We are going to read from the book of Daniel, and you'll find, um, you'll find the first chapter on page 1294, and Naomi is going to come and read to us um, the entirety of the chapter, so do open it if you've got a Bible in front of you. There's a, a little stack of them at the front if you want to wave your hand if you need one. Um, Coyote will go and give you one, but um, otherwise, you can listen. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the king of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favour and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom." And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Brilliant. Well, the book of Daniel. Why are we studying this book? What are we doing? Um, And why is it important to us? I want to give you three reasons as we kick off. The first has to do with Daniel himself. Daniel is an unusual character in the Bible. Um, He... Typically when you're reading the Bible, and I'm sure some of you um, have a habit of reading it through cover to cover um, each year, when you read the Bible, one of the things that will strike you about it, and really a mark of its authenticity, 
is that so many of the men and women of the Bible are shown to be such deeply flawed characters. You remember how when Oliver Cromwell was having his portrait painted, he requested that the artist paint him warts and all. In other words, that he not sort of smooth over or Photoshop his blemishes. And really, when you're reading the Bible, you can read about some of, even the greatest heroes of faith in the scriptures and they're guys who make abysmal mistakes. I mean, really catastrophic errors. And all of the dirty laundry is put out on display when you're reading the Bible. And for me, that's one of, its, one of the things that really resonates. You think, I can identify with these men because they're real. They're not perfect. But in, in a way, Daniel's... Almost an exception to that. It's not, of course, that he's perfect, but that he is perhaps one of the most pure-hearted and compelling and attractive characters in the entirety of the Bible. You know, the most famous story is of him being put into the lion's den as a kind of punishment for his unwillingness to obey. And the result, of course, is that he survives. We'll get there. We're jumping ahead. We'll get there. But what you really discover about Daniel is that rather than him being a man in the lion's den, he is the lion in a den of weak people. He is the one with such inner conviction and such amazing steadfastness and grit with gentleness and meekness brought together in this wonderful, um, complex character who has these gifts and this humility to match. Amazing man. In that sense, he reminds us a lot of Jesus. I think that in a real way, he's a foreshadowing of Jesus, as we'll see. That he, There's an echo about him and his character that reminds us of Jesus, who comes much later, about seven, six, seven centuries after Daniel. So that's the first reason. I think that when you look at a man like him, you're going to find you're, that you're compelled, that you're attracted to him, and that he, it changes you. Just, just rubbing shoulders with great people, whether in person or through books, has an impact on you. It rubs off on you. It changes you. That's one amazing reason to look at this book. The second is this. Daniel finds himself in the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, in the city of Babylon. It's in present-day Iraq. Babylon is a very, very significant city throughout the whole of the Bible. It first features very early on in the book of Genesis when they build the Tower of Babel. And uh, as a kind of... a way of sort of raising fists to God and saying, we're going to be great. We're going to achieve something. We're mankind after all. And God sort of flattens that little effort at being great. And as the story rolls on, you don't hear much about Babylon for a while until now. Because whilst the, there's been another empire, the Syrian empire has been, on the, has been uh, the ruling empire at the time. Nebuchadnezzar is the new king of Babylon and he begins to sweep across all the Middle Eastern world, conquering the whole thing. And this city was the greatest city in the world at the time in terms of its beauty. They said that the gates of the city were, were, um, were tiled in like a sapphire-colored tiles with pictures of lions and creatures on the front of them. And it had a tower that was 100 meters tall. 100 meters is really, I mean, it's probably the tallest tower in the world at the time. He had the hanging gardens of Babylon, which Nebuchadnezzar was said to have made for his wife. In that sense, the city of Babylon represents everything that man loves and craves and covets and desires. Power and wealth and the glory of man. And that's how it features later on in the scriptures when you zoom right to the end of the story in the book of Revelation. Babylon is set up in opposition to, to God's city. And so it becomes this kind of 
parable of two cities, the war of two cities, the city of God versus the city of man. And here we are looking at, in, in real history, what happens when you take a man of God or some men of God, there's four of them, remember, and you place them in Babylon. Now, the reason why that matters to us as Christians, Peter tells us that we are, he uses the language of, that we're sojourners and exiles in the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. It means that while our home is not here, we're placed here by God's design for, for a purpose. It applies to just being a Christian, a living in the world, knowing that your home is with God, but also applies in a very special sense when you live in a city like London. Because if you could line up the cities of the world today and say, well, which one is most equivalent to the city of Babylon as it was in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, a city like London would be a strong competitor. The amount of power and wealth that flows through and from this city is, is dizzying. How to be a Christian, how to represent Christ in the middle of Babylon, that's the theme that Daniel addresses and which will challenge us as Christians, wanting to be God's presence, the salt and the light as Jesus calls us to be in the midst of a city like this. That's another reason then. A third reason has to do with what it's going to teach us about God. I think a book like this, which gives quite a, a long period of history, because Daniel lived a long time, he lived into his 80s, gives you a sweeping glance at the way God moves. You see his hand upon the whole situation in what would otherwise be a traumatic and very difficult scenario. Please just remember what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar has just conquered the Syrian Empire and as a result swept up all the nations that Syria was governing into his arms. And Israel was one of those. He'd besieged Jerusalem. He conquered them. It became a vassal state. And you can imagine that when his armies went through, there was a lot of raping and pillaging and destruction. If you were an Israelite at the time, the thing you most hate in the world is the sight of a Babylonian. And what Nebuchadnezzar does is he wrenches these young men. They're described as being those of the royal family and the nobility in Jerusalem, he wrenches them away from their families and puts them in the center of his capital a thousand miles away. This was the worst moment of their young lives. These are probably teenagers at the time. Everything that they despised was being thrust upon them. They, they would have hated it. But right at the start of this book, it tells us, Verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, this is Daniel's king back home in Jerusalem, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, along with the vessels of the house of God. It's telling us right at the start, we need to frame the story and understand that this was God's intention all along. And so as you begin to read the book of Daniel, what you discover is that God's hand is weaving the plot lines. Even amidst suffering, even amidst these circumstances which were the worst of Daniel's young life, God is in control. And you get a little clue at the end of chapter 1 of what God's up to. It says Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Cyrus is two kings later after Nebuchadnezzar. And in fact, he's the emperor of, of the the king of an entirely different empire. 
And the message that it's meant to signal to us is this. That whilst it looks like Daniel's and, and the people of God are the weak ones, the suffering ones, it says that the empires of the world, they just come and go. The kings come and go, but God's people remain. They're God's, they're God's, they've got God's hand upon them, and they're his seed in the midst of the dark world. Daniel lives into his 80s as a man who, who just who remains faithful to God, and it doesn't really matter. All the events that are swirling around him, the changing of empires, the changing of kings. And there's nothing more important for you as a Christian in the midst of day-to-day struggles, in the midst of all the challenges that you're going to face, life is an uphill battle, especially when you want to live for God. There is nothing more important for you to grasp than the fact that God is thoroughly and completely and entirely in control of the details of your life. It's what we talk about as the sovereignty of God, that he has a sovereign rule over every detail, every aspect of your life. And a lot of people want to paint a picture of God being kind of involved, but kind of letting things play out in their own way. But the reality is you cannot be a little bit sovereign. You're either sovereign entirely or not at all. And the way the Bible shows us, that tells us a story, is that God is entirely in control of your life. Now, I want us to just keep these few things in mind as we go through this series. The character of Daniel, living in Babylon and the control of God in all these circumstances. But really the question that grips me is the one of how to live in Babylon. And that's where we're going to kick off with this first chapter. I want us to see three things in this story in the first chapter that will, I think, help you to reframe your understanding of how to live as a Christian in this city, in this world. And the first is this. That you face far more danger in Babylon, in the world, in London, than maybe you've acknowledged or realized. You face dangers in Babylon. Let me show you how. Nebuchadnezzar is a smart king. In conquering the lands like Israel, he could have just, I mean, what would be the typical thing to do? You just go in and you just kill everyone. You remember like the French Revolution that just wiped out the aristocracy and how in so many wars, all it is about is just about killing and destroying. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to do that. Instead, what he wants to do is somehow turn each of these little nations towards him so that they will serve him in the, with the least friction possible, enlarging his wealth and his power and his grandeur in the world. So how does he do that? He goes in. And he takes the cream of society, the smartest young men around, and brings them back home to Babylon for what was really the beginning of their university course. Three years of intense study in all the language and learning of the Babylonians. Now, I think this is an incredibly smart thing to do, but it's also a very subtle thing to do. And some of the things that stand out here are the ways in which he seeks to He doesn't just want to subjugate people and turn them into slaves. He wants somehow to turn their posture and win their hearts. And look how he does it. The first thing, one of the first things he does is he he steals their identity. Did you see how in in verse 6, so well read by Naomi, the names of um, these young men. Their original names are Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and... uh, 
and Azariah. Sorry, I missed one there. There's four guys. And these names mean things like this. Daniel means God is my judge. Remember the word El means God. So Daniel means God is my judge. The name Hananiah means the Lord is gracious. So Yahweh is gracious. You can immediately think how these names must have felt a little bit like a mockery to these men. Because suddenly, where's the grace of God in this? Our people have been totally destroyed. We've We've been yanked out of our home. Mishael means he that is the strong God. Speaking about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And Azariah means Yahweh is a help. And Ashpenaz, who's the chief of the eunuchs, one of the first things he does is he renames these men. As soon as they arrive in Babylon, he gives them new names. And they mean things like this. Daniel's called Belteshazzar, which means keeper of the hidden treasures of Bel, the god Bel. Hananiah. Uh, He's given the name Shadrach, which means inspiration of the sun. Remember, a lot of the the Babylonian gods were associated with stuff in nature. So the sun and the moon and rivers and all this kind of stuff. And Mishael, he's given the name Meshach, which means of the goddess Shak. Because this is all just a massive slap in the face to a young Israelite. And Azariah is given the name Abednego or Abednego which means servant of the shining fire. The first thing that Nebuchadnezzar wants to do to these young men, besides mocking their worship of Yahweh, besides confronting them with a kind of statement about how weak their God is and how, how insipid and how, how powerless he must be that these men have been wrenched. And so to erode their faith and make a statement about how great their gods must be. I think it's deeper than that. I think what he wants to do is, first and foremost, take ownership of them. You know when you name something? It's a way of claiming ownership over that thing. When you get an, a pet dog, you give it its name. It says, that dog belongs to me. And even more subtly than that, I think it's a way of wanting to change the way that these young men perceive themselves. Remember, what's the most dangerous thing about these young men who are going to be sat in the presence of the king? It's that in their heart, they might have another allegiance. They might love Yahweh more than Nebuchadnezzar. And so what Nebuchadnezzar wants to do is he wants to, he wants to, to stamp them with a new name, a new sense of identity that will begin to erode all of their earlier, previous allegiances that were so defining of how they understood themselves. And friends, I believe that this is exactly the way that the enemy seeks to work in our hearts and our lives even in wanting to erode your faith in God. He wants to give you a new name. He wants to give you a name like addict, or failure, or something like lack of self-control, or lukewarm. He wants you to perceive yourself in such a way that you Your confidence in God is eroded and your sense of who you are is defined by everything that's wrong in your life. Alternatively, he wants to flatter you so that your identity centers around your achievements, 
your job. And those, those things become your new name. And these, I think, are some of the greatest dangers of what it means to live in a city like London. You see yourself head-to-head jostling for position and attainment and achievement alongside some of the best and brightest people in the land. And pretty soon you start to define yourself by how well you're keeping up with others. The enemy wants to give you a new name. He wants to shape the way you think about yourself because by shaping the way you think about yourself, he can alter the way you behave and act and your allegiances and your faithfulness to God. The book of Revelation talks about those who are going to stay faithful to God through life. And it says this, Jesus says, I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I think it's an amazing picture of what it means that Jesus is saying to his people, when you're faithful to me, I, give, I stamp you with a new name. You're mine. Do you remember how Jesus spoke to Cephas, Peter, whose name was Simon, gave him the new name Peter, which means rock. It was way, Jesus' way of saying, now you're, you belong to me, and this is the most important thing about you. You're now the rock upon which I'm going to build my church. Now, Christians, you're called to live for the new name which Christ will give you. But friends, the enemy wants to steal your identity. And even more subtle than that, as we go through this chapter, what you discover is that Nebuchadnezzar wants to steal their hearts. He isn't just interested in keeping them down as groveling servants. It's interesting, it's amazing how he takes these Hebrew young boys and then what does he do? First of all, he puts them into a program of education. It says that they're to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They would learn things like mathematics. This is one of the most advanced civilizations on the planet. They'd learn mathematics, they'd learn agriculture, they would learn astronomy and navigation and also astrology and, and all the tricks of the magicians and all these kinds of things. It would be a very broad education. And they'd be reading all of the various um, library books that they had in about three or four languages from the successive empires that had ruled in the area. These men were going to be steeped in a new way of thinking, a new way of learning. Now, we're told here that these are guys who were endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. So we can already assume that Daniel and his friends are guys who've grown up in their own relatively privileged backgrounds studying God's word. They knew how to read the law of God. They knew it back to front, and they knew prophets. We know that Daniel has read the prophet Jeremiah. We know it from later in the book. So these guys already are well-educated, but now Nebuchadnezzar wants them to be steeped in a, in a learning which is just going to overwhelm them and cause them to gasp at its breadth and its depth and its profundity. And it seems to me that this is exactly what you face as a Christian living in the world. That the greatest battles are the ones in terms of, that happen in here in terms of what you should think and believe. And one of our great problems is our tendency to be so impressed with what the world has to offer 
They're so embarrassed about how sort of um, pathetic our beliefs can appear in the face of science, in the face of progress, in the face of advancement. Don't think that that temptation is anything new. That is exactly what Daniel and his friends faced. The challenge would be, would they remember what they had been brought up on with their mother's milk? Or would they be so changed by this deliberate system of indoctrination? I know that's such a loaded word, but please don't assume that this isn't something that you're experiencing every single day of your life. Just to live and walk and move in the world as it is, is to experience indoctrination every day. Every article you read, every billboard you look at, almost every conversation you have is a battle of worldviews between one way of seeing life and the way that God tells you you should see life. And then it gets even more subtle still. These men are having stolen identities. They're being indoctrinated in all the teaching of the Babylonians. But look, look even more carefully. It says in verse 5, the king assigned them a portion of food that the king ate and the wine that he drank. I think this is probably the most dangerous thing which Daniel and his friends could face in Babylon. The reason is that you know that saying that a man's, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. I think it's, it's true. If you've tasted my wife's cooking, you'll understand why our marriage is so sweet. And uh, <laughs> The Bible shows us that we have a very, very subtle enemy. That whilst he can, he can hurt us with pain, and these, these young men had suffered much pain, and pain can erode people's faith in God. It can, it can really cause you to question and to doubt whether God is good. Pain can do one thing to you. But even more dangerous, I think, than pain is pleasure. Because pleasure is more subtle, more slow. It creeps upon you in ways that you, you didn't even see it coming and, and just so gradually, so gently, softens your zeal and turns your heart. Now, it's not that pleasure is in itself a bad thing. God created pleasure and he created everything that we enjoy to be enjoyed in the right way. But I think that what Nebuchadnezzar was doing here, by taking these young men who he could have just had killed with a click of his fingers and putting them basically at the king's table to eat the best food in the whole world, by putting them there, what he wanted to do, his aim was that one day, Daniel and his friends would wake up and they would realize that they've forgotten home and that even as it comes to mind, they don't really want to go back home. Back home, they didn't eat very good food. They didn't enjoy the good life. This is home. At Nebuchadnezzar's table, eating his food, enjoying his wine. This is the good life. This is This is where I ought to be. I want us to just move on. Those are the dangers that you face in Babylon. And friends, I think for all of us, the dangers are unique. The ways that the enemy wants to name you, the ways, the truths that particularly that he wants to to challenge in your heart and the pleasures that he wants to seduce you with. Only you can answer, well, what is the way, what are the pleasures through which the enemy gains a foothold in my heart? But look 
Look on. Look at how Daniel responds and what it teaches us about how to live on, in Babylon. I think the second thing we need to learn from this chapter is that you have to draw the line at some point. It happens here in verse 8. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. A lot of people wrestle with the question of what is going on in Daniel's heart here. Why, why is he refusing this food and drink? And actually, it's not a very easy question to answer. If you know anything about Jewish customs and law, you know that they had various food laws. So some people suggested, well, perhaps it was because the food was not, they're not allowed to eat it. Maybe there was blood in the meat and they, were, had, they had to have the meat killed, and animals killed in a certain way and the blood drained. Um, or perhaps it's just that they were eating things like pigs, which pork, which you're not supposed to eat as a Jew. Maybe there was some of that in there, but it doesn't explain why he, he turned away the wine. Because the, the, the Bible never told Daniel that he can't eat wine unless these men were Rechabites or Nazarites, men who'd taken a vow not to drink wine. But there's no indication that they are. So I don't think it has to do with ceremonial uncleanness. In other words, the defilement of eating the wrong kinds of food. Well, another possibility is that they were, they were being offered food which had been offered to idols first. So what, what would happen is you'd kill animals and you'd, you'd take your food down to the, to the temple and put it in front of the God and say, look, kind of offer it to the God and then you'd take it home and serve it to your family and to, your, and to in the king's palace and whatever. But that, again, doesn't really account for what's happening here because here they are, they, they're still eating they're still eating the vegetables. So Daniel obviously isn't too bothered about whether the food's been offered to idols or not because it made no difference whether it was meat or vegetables. It's all been offered to the gods of Babylon. You may think, well, maybe he's just being a little bit petulant, a little bit passive-aggressive. He's just sort of like wanting, almost like a hunger strike or something. But we know that's not his motivation. In fact, he goes to, 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 he goes to great effort to make sure that that he isn't seen to be rebellious, that he's, he, he gets fatter. You know, that's the challenge that he sets up with, with Ashpenaz, with the chief eunuch. He says, I'm going to put on weight. I'm going to be healthier than all of you. It's not to do with a kind of rebellious petulance or passive aggression. The simple answer is this. Why Daniel decided that he and his friends ought not to eat this meat and drink this wine is just that he, he understood the power of pleasure. He understood that the way to seduce his spirit was through his body. And that if he allowed his body to indulge in all of the good things of, of Babylon, pretty soon his faith in God would be dead. And so I think what, it, what he did is he, he looked around at the situation and he just said to himself, I, I like some of what they're offering me. It's, it's lovely. This is the best food I've ever seen in my life. This wine, I'm sure, tastes better than anything we grow back home. And he said, I, I better be careful because I am an Israelite. I am a servant of the living God. And if I, if I think it's just an, a casual thing to partake of this food and this drink, pretty soon my faith in God is going to be dead and I, I won't have any zeal for him. I won't hunger after him. I won't pursue him. I won't pray to him. If I find that all my needs and all my desires are met here in Nebuchadnezzar's hand and out of his generosity, then what need do I have for the God who I've grown up being taught to pray to and to trust in and to lean on and to rely upon? And so he came to this calculation. 
It wasn't necessarily that by eating the meat and drinking the wine, he would have been committing any kind of sin. But rather that he knew his heart could not withstand the seduction and the power of the pleasure that would win him inch by inch, day by day, and year after year. Now, Christian, listen to me. There is a point in every Christian's life where you must exercise self-denial. And I don't only mean in areas of obvious sin and purity. That's in some ways a little bit easier. I mean in the areas where it's much more subtle. Again, only you can identify what those areas are in your life. I don't think the question is so much about what you're not allowed, but rather it's more what you, you don't want to, to do without. Or what gives you enjoyment in such a way that it, it swallows your, your heart, your mind, your desires, your passions, your endeavors, your ambitions. I think that there are things in life which, though good in and of themselves, when you have no boundaries, will swallow you whole. Or will cause you to become so much more flabby in a spiritual sense. I'm sure you've all heard the story of the Chinese underground church, how China was one of the biggest mission fields on the face of the planet. I mean, there were hundreds and thousands of missionaries from the West that had moved to China around from sort of the Victorian era through into the early part of the last century. But after the communist revolution, Mao Zedong threw them all out. And they thought that the Chinese church would completely die without the kind of sustenance and feeding from these white Western missionaries. They thought the whole thing is just going to collapse. And that was the intention. Well, a number of decades later, the Western world became increasingly aware that the very opposite was taking place, that as the Chinese church had become indigenous, and in fact was experiencing a lot of persecution, it wasn't, there was a kind of state church that some people went to, but by far and away, the biggest church in China has been the, the unsanctioned underground church, a church that meets in secret in people's homes and has, has grown to, people. at some estimates, people are saying something like 10% of Chinese people would claim to be followers of Jesus now. Now, given that it's a huge population in that country, that's a lot of people. There are a lot of Christians, even in the heart of the Communist Party and even rising to high positions of power. If you were to ask some of the leaders of the Chinese underground church, what do they most fear? for the future of their church. I've read that whilst persecution is always a threat, it's not persecution that they're afraid of. You know, a lot of Christians get thrown into prison in China. Some of them spend decades in prison on account of their faith. But they say, often these church leaders just say, bring it on. The more you persecute us, the more, it seems, we flourish. No, what they most fear is China's prosperity. Because as China grows more and more prosperous, 
the greater danger than government interference in the church is the danger of each individual Christian being seduced by the power of wealth and money and possessions, materialism, Western consumerism that's infecting the whole world. That's what they most fear and what they see as the greatest threat to the spiritual health and life and vitality of the Chinese underground church. Why is this the case? It's all to do with pleasure and joy and delight. The Christian is someone who, with the psalmist in Psalm 16, says things like this, You are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Christian is someone who looks at all the good things in life and says, in comparison with knowing God, all of it is rubbish and I could do without any of it. I don't need it. God could take it away and my life would not be any poorer because I have all the riches I need in Christ. The Christian is someone who goes on and says, as it, as it says here, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Imagine, you could almost see that this language echoes Daniel, my chosen portion of meat and my cup of wine. God is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot, he says. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And then he rounds it off in the end of Psalm 16. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. The minute that that is no longer your conviction as a Christian is when you are in most danger The greatest threat to your faith is that you'll want to find your joy in other things other than in God. It's not that we cannot enjoy other things in life, but rather that we enjoy them in gratitude and in acknowledgement that every good thing comes from God. And the minute that that is no longer your dominant faith stance, that's when your faith is beginning to be eroded. What must you do? If Daniel had simply been passive and accepted his circumstances, he'd have been dead. I mean, his, his spiritual life would have been dead. I think if the book of Daniel teaches us one thing at this point, it's this. That you must not view the stuff of life as neutral. As though it's not affecting your spiritual life. I think we grow, we've grown up in probably one of the most prosperous generations in the history of the world in terms of how easily we can access everything we need and over and above. Nobody this morning was questioning where their breakfast would come from. If you were, please come and talk to me. We'll help you. I doubt that any of us were. None of us were, were wondering about those things. If anything, we're wondering whether we can afford to upgrade to the new contract on internet, phone, whatever it is. We live in one of the most prosperous generations in the history of the world. And what that then brings often is a sense of entitlement. Not that these are, are good gifts that, that come from God and that we can enjoy, but rather these are things I ought to have because everyone else around me has them. And this is just the low mark of what it means to be a normal person in my society. Entitlement is the enemy of faith because it's saying that I don't depend on God anymore but rather I am a, 
I'm a, I deserve these things. I think that what Daniel teaches us is that we must never be passive, but rather must always see things, always see things as having a spiritual significance. Nothing is neutral around you. Everything has a significance in your life. And then, as Daniel does here, you have to resolve. A resolution is simply a deep-set decision. We talk of New Year resolutions, and as we were last week, we typically mocked them. Daniel's was no such kind of resolution. Daniel's resolution was the kind of resolution that he stuck with. Daniel resolved, but Daniel resolved, but Daniel resolved. He decided, he drew the line. He knew where his limits were. He knew what his dangers were. He knew how to fight it. Friend, that is what you must do. You face all these dangers I've been describing. The thing you have to do is resolve. I want to show you one more facet of what it means for Daniel here to live in Babylon. And it has to do with God. He faced danger. He drew the line. And what do we see God doing here? God is vindicating Daniel. What does this word vindicate mean? It's kind of like proving you right, I suppose. There's a moment in that film, The Chariots of Fire, when Eric Little, who's made these very principled decisions, he said, I won't run on a Sunday and therefore I cannot compete in the 100 meter final. Or just in the tests running up to the final in the Paris Olympics in 1926. He's a Christian. He says, I won't run on a Sunday and therefore he decides not to. Instead, he, he gets a kind of wild card entry into the 400 meter race, which is a completely different kind of race. And there's a moment in the, in the film which depicts these events, which I'm sure has some artistic license, but I think it's a very, very perceptive moment in the film when a Christian athlete from the United States passes Eric Little a note in the run-up to the final. He opens the note and it says this verse from the book of 1 Samuel. It says, He who honours me, I will honour him. It's God speaking, saying, when you decide in your life to put me first, I'll vindicate you, I'll back you up. As we read, up, uh, read on in the book of Daniel, what we discover is that these men never assume that God's going to do the thing they hope he'll do. When the three of Daniel's friends are put into the fiery furnace, they say, God will save us, but if he doesn't, dot, dot, dot. They don't really mind as long as they they know in their conscience that they've honoured God. But God does decide to favour these men here in this first chapter in three ways. He vindicates him first with favour. It says that God gave Daniel, verse 9, favour and compassion, or the word is tender love, in the sight of the chief eunuch. So this eunuch is a hardened, managerial leader type who knows how to whip these young men into shape but something about Daniel compels him and makes him feel there's something unique about this young man and his friends and he feels favour towards them and friends I don't think it has anything to do with personalities I think it's entirely to do with God's action because that's what he tells us here it says God gave Daniel favour it's almost like a Jedi mind trick isn't it 
you will give us vegetables. I will give you vegetables. God gave Daniel favor. God was moving ahead of him supernaturally. And it speaks to us in our situation when you think, if I stand up for God, people will hate me. And Jesus says, yep, that's going to happen. But sometimes the opposite happens. Sometimes God in his grace allows you to get more favor, more respect, more love, more compassion because you have stood up for what you believed in. And he does it supernaturally. Sometimes it defies all belief and common sense. You think, I ought to be vilified for these decisions. The decision to be honest at work or the decision to turn down that promotion or the decision to, to, be, um, to save my integrity with this contract. Whatever it is. And God gave favor, it says. God gave favor and compassion. He vindicated them also with health. I find this one quite interesting. Do you see how when Ashpenaz, this eunuch, he, his life is also on the line. His neck would be on the block if the young men were to suffer ill health at his hand. Nebuchadnezzar would have him. He'd kill him. So Daniel says, look, Ashpenaz, let's just do a test here. I'm just going to eat vegetables and water for a few days, 10 days. If we look healthy, then we'll carry on. If not, then fine, we'll eat your the meal plan that you've set out for us. And he, he agrees to it. And then it tells us, verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. Now, once more, we know that this is God's action because, friends, they're vegetarians. Have you ever met a vegetarian who's fatter in flesh? Generally speaking, the very opposite is the case, right? These guys are on a strict vegetarian diet. Vegetables basically only contain water. <laughs> There's not much to them. So, so they're eating water and they're drinking water and they get fatter. Their cheeks plump out. Their bellies begin to feel like little mounds. You know, they, they're, they're feeling plump and healthy. And friends, I think we're meant to see this is God's action. It's a miracle. They ought to be losing weight and looking gaunt. <laughs> no, God's doing it. Third way he vindicates them is with anointing. It says, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all the literature and wisdom. And, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And then it says a little bit later that they, in every matter of wisdom and understanding, about which the king inquired of them. So he, they had some kind of like a... A viva, an oral examination where they stand before King Nebuchadnezzar and they have to give answers on the spot to all these questions. You would be utterly bricking it. You'd be terrified. But it says he found them ten times smarter and more educated than even all the magicians and enchanters in the whole land. So we're talking about these are students freshly graduated from the University of Babylon being compared with the professors and we're meant to see, please do not miss this, that it has nothing to do with their natural ability, even if they were some of the more gifted young men in Israel. We're meant to see, it says, God gave them learning and skill in verse 17. God did it. God backed them up. There's a saying these days, back yourself, isn't there? Lean in, back yourself. 
We get all these sort of expressions of how you're meant to be sort of someone who, 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 who backs your own initiatives and is confident. So when you go into an interview, people can see that you really believe in your own gifts and abilities. Friends, this is the very opposite of that. These young men aren't backing themselves. They understand that God is backing them. And he does. He vindicates their choices. Why is God doing this? I think there's a few reasons we could name as we close, but one of them is just to do, it's to do with his glory. You know, God, in a sense, has deliberately suffered shame because his own temple in Jerusalem has been emptied and pillaged and all the vessels of the temple have been brought to Babylon, which, on the face of it, looks like a statement about God's weakness. But God has ways of displaying his power and his strength, and he's working in this... Guys like Nebuchadnezzar are just his puppets, And so by vindicating these young men, God's saying, I'm going to get the glory nevertheless. It reminds me of that verse in, in one of the Gospels when John the Baptist, he's been the most prominent preacher on the scene, but his entire role was to kind of pave the way, prepare people's hearts for the coming of Jesus, who was a bit younger, his younger cousin. And as John the Baptist's star is beginning to wane and his ministry decrease in significance just prior to his death actually and Jesus star is beginning to rise John the Baptist puts it in this poignant memorable way he says he must increase I must decrease I think that that is the posture of Daniel and his friends he must increase I must decrease and God takes that opportunity to glorify himself yes I will increase I will show my power to these men in the heart of Babylon. God can do it in you, by the way. I don't know what you want to do with your life, where you want to go. He who honors me, I will honor, the Bible says. You'll be tempted all the time to to take shortcuts, to compromise. You'll be tempted all the time to, to, read, to, to realign your priorities, to give yourself too much to your ambitions and your aims and your desires and trying to take things into your control. One of the great challenges that you'll face is to believe that God can do in you what he did in Daniel. In his sovereignty, he can place you wherever he wants you if you're faithful to him. It's exactly the same thing we saw happen in the life of Joseph very early on in the Bible. Do you remember how in the most extraordinary, unlikely situation. He's sold by his own brothers to be a slave into Egypt. But God was arranging it because first of all, he becomes a manager of a household, Potiphar's house. Then he gets put in jail. It feels like snakes and ladders always in Joseph's life. Back to the bottom of the grid. But in jail, they find him to be a man of extraordinary character and caliber. And he arises to become the manager of the jail. So they use a prisoner to manage the other prisoners because he's so extraordinary. And then he's forgotten. You know the details of the story, I won't go into them now, but it feels like he's not getting anywhere. He's still just a prisoner. And then one day, through a miraculous turn of events, God lifts him out of prison and puts him in the household of Pharaoh. It seems to be one of God's specialities, doesn't it? Taking insignificant young men and putting them in palaces. 
And it's not through any action of their own or any conniving or scheming or even ambition. These men didn't choose this life. So often we praise ambition as though it's something great. The Bible never praises personal ambition. It always condemns it. The Bible would much prefer that you stay humble and insignificant than that you arise to positions of power by your own doing. But God will cause some Christians to rise up to positions of power in his time, in his will, in his sovereignty. He'll favor some. How much better when he's favored you because of your faithfulness to him and your humility and your trust and your integrity. God can glorify himself through that kind of a person. And that's what I think he's doing here. I think it's about that. I think it's partly about also God finding vessels that he takes pleasure in and that he can use. When you read on in the book of Daniel, um, what you'll find is that these men face much, much more difficult challenges. They face challenges like the call to bow down to the emperor and worship him. They face challenges like the ban on praying to any other god. Daniel, as we will find out, has a habit of praying three times a day in quite a public way because he'd open his windows facing Jerusalem and then bow down to, to God. Here's the thing I want you to understand. The Daniel and his friends that we will encounter later in the story when they're faced by insurmountable odds and impenetrable problems, they haven't landed as faithful men in that situation by accident. It all begins here. They set a trajectory at this point of deciding to follow God. So that when they meet the real stuff, not the subtle things like whether you eat this food or that food, but the real stuff, like whether you're even allowed to pray, their hearts have already been set in the right direction. They've already made courageous decisions. They've already shown that we live for God. I think so few Christians understand how this works. A lot of Christians have a desire to do something for God on the big stage. To stand up for him when it counts. To be generous when they're wealthy. To be faithful when they're really up against the wall. But you understand, right, that that never happens when you don't do it in the small, hidden, subtle ways that no one sees. I don't think people who are wealthy are generous unless they're generous when they're really struggling and hard up. I don't think people make uncompromising decisions further down the line. One great example is in politics. Some Christians think they just need to play the game for a while until they get to a position of power and then they can sort of influence things. No, no, no. If you've played the game all the way along, you'll do it when you get into position of power because nothing changes. It only gets more difficult. Dear friends, Make it your resolve, your decision, that you live for God no matter what happens. Don't try and engineer your life. Don't try and predict the outcome of your choices as though God isn't in charge. Be uncompromising servants of the living God and he will vindicate you. He will do what he did in Daniel's life and in his friends' lives. 
Ultimately, as I close, I think God's at work here, as I mentioned right at the start, giving a foreshadowing of a greater Daniel who would yet come. Jesus, like Daniel, is one who finds himself in exile in a foreign land. He's left his place, his royal place at God's right hand and finds himself in a situation away from his home. And like Daniel, he's one who wants to live an undefiled life. Except Jesus is more perfect and more pure than even the great Daniel. Jesus is completely undefiled. And then also like Daniel, it says of Jesus in Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Matthew Henry said about Daniel that God sovereignly owns him. In other words, he said, that that boy, I'm going to do something with his life. How much more does he sovereignly own the life of Jesus Christ, the greater Daniel? And ultimately, just as Daniel is put to be the third most powerful man in the kingdom later in the story, Jesus is given the name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and upon earth to the glory of God the Father. Dear friends, we serve this greater Daniel, our Savior, this Jesus. Let us serve him well. If you're a person who's not a Christian, then can I encourage you to allow yourself to be confronted with the reality of Christ, who he is and what he did on your behalf. Time doesn't allow me to tell you any more today, but please do come back. We're always talking about him. We're going to take communion. And uh, as we do it, I think it's hugely symbolic that the whole theme of Daniel 1 is about food and drink. And here we, are, here we are eating and drinking. Do you remember that verse in Psalm 16? The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Taking communion is a very physical way of stating to God, you are my portion and my cup. I choose you. I choose the pleasures of God. I choose to delight in you above every earthly thing. And if God has been putting his finger on something in your life today where you say with Daniel, I need to resolve. I need to cut something off. I need to say no to something. I need to turn away from something that I might have a heart that's undefiled and pure before him. And friends, I I encourage you to take communion as a conscious, deliberate opportunity to embrace what God has for you instead. The pleasures of God as it's described in Psalm 16 as you turn your back on the things that he wants you to turn away from. The Christian life is one of continual repentance, but sometimes there are just these moments when God grips you by the collar and you've got to respond to him. May it be right now.